All right, let's go to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians 4 verse 1. I, I know we said last week we we're going to have another talk on our Presence and Power series, but um, I felt like we'd kind of covered it. So I got really excited about preaching this topic. I, I feel my heart has been marinating in these truths for the last few weeks. And so I was really keen to preach on this. So let's go. Galatians chapter 4 verse 1 to 7. If you don't have a Bible, the verses will be on the screen behind me. You can follow along. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no, longer, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You know, there has been a, a plethora of research recently that has shown the importance of a, an involved father in the life of a child. Stephen Bidoff, who's one of Australia's best childhood educators and psychologists, lists a whole bunch of these effects in a child's life of an involved father. Things like this, things like they do better at school, they're emotionally and socially uh, more stable, they're more confident, they have more social connections, better verbal skills, better intellectual functioning, and the list goes on and on and on. Now, that's not to say mothers are unimportant, they are. But what has happened in the field of research in the area of childhood development is that in the 70s, they began to realize that fathers were actually quite important. And so all of this research was done into the presence of an involved father in the life of a child. But the question is, why is it so important? Why is it important for an involved daddy in the life of a child? Well, because so much of a child's identity and sense of self is derived from their dad. Not exclusively, but significantly derived from their father. And that's true of us spiritually as well. That our sense of self and our identity is derived from our Heavenly Father. We get this new identity as adopted sons and daughters, included into God's family through Christ. But you know, the reality for all of us is no matter how good or how poor your experience of your earthly father has been, the reality for all of us is that we approach our heavenly father through the lens and experience of our earthly father. In Galatians chapter 4, we see this beautiful picture of God adopting us. This is a foundational passage for our understanding of our gospel identity in Christ. And I literally just want to point your attention to two things from these verses this morning. The first is what you have been saved from. And secondly, what you have been saved for. So come back to verse 1 with me of Galatians chapter 4. And this is a picture that Paul is painting. An illustration, he says, I mean that the air." As long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, 
though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. This is a picture that Paul is painting here using some cultural practices in the first century. It's a picture that describes initially God's people, but ultimately all people outside of Christ. And it picks up on first century um, cultural and, tradition and, and legal practices where a father would name in his will guardians and managers to take care of his son and his estate in the event that he would die. The, um, the firstborn son generally received most, if not all, of the inheritance. And so that firstborn son was under the care of the guardians until he was aged 14. And then the property, the estate, was under the stewardship of the managers until he was aged 25. Only then, when he is of age, when he is old enough to manage this himself, does he fully enjoy the fullness and freedom of being a son and exercising control over the father's estate. But while the child, while the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave in his father's house. There are these constraints over him, constraints of guardians and managers. And this picture serves to remind God's people and remind us of our state. Verse 3, in the same way, we also were just like that heir who was equivalent to a slave, constrained, enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. Slaves to the law, slaves to the enemy, his works and effects. Deeply trying to live up to some principle, be that a religious principle, be that a principle that we've placed on our own lives, we're trapped by a perceived standard that we just cannot live up to. Paul says that's what you will like. Now, I don't know about you. I don't know if you feel like a slave today. I don't know if you feel trapped. Maybe you don't, but maybe you do. Maybe you feel a slave to your circumstances. Maybe you feel a slave because of your lack of opportunity. Maybe you feel a slave to the pressures of society or to the expectations of family. You feel trapped. Outwardly, everything in your life screams, I'm free. But inwardly, you drag the shackles of captivity. It's very easy for us in middle class, highly educated, wealthy, fluid society like Sydney 2016 to feel that we are completely free. But all it takes is a short inspection of our lives to realize that so often even the very things that we look to for freedom are the very things that trap us and enslave us and become idols in our life. Like if we just take, for example, career. The thing that most Australian culture looks to, to give us our sense of security, to give us our sense of freedom, to give us our sense of importance, to give us our sense of significance, that very thing can end up enslaving us and making us feel trapped. 
even in the very best jobs, the most fulfilling jobs, even, dare I say it, in being a pastor of a church, you can feel trapped, enslaved, enslaved to the system, enslaved to capitalism and consumerism and your own unfulfilled dreams and your own benchmark that you can't even achieve, like trapped. I wonder how free you really are today. How free are you? Think about how often we justify ourselves to other people. How often we try and justify our significance and our importance. We're slaves to the opinions of others. So much. More than we really care to admit. We care too much about what people think about how we look. We're crushed when people talk down about us. We desperately seek the approval of the opposite sex in ways that can be unhealthy. We're seeking to uh, be accepted by everyone. And so our convictions and our, our beliefs just shift and change so quickly so that we'll be accepted by the majority. We're promoting ourselves so that people will see and acknowledge our achievements and our importance. But the reality is that every day, every day we're trapped by what someone else in your life thinks of you, your parents, your boss, your wife, your husband, your girlfriend, boy, whoever. And worse than that is when we start to live that self-justifying behavior out religiously. Self-righteous, self-justifying behavior is probably the worst of all. We think to ourselves, well, because I'm good, because I attend, because I lead, because I preach, because I do this, God and others must approve of me and accept me. We're slaves. Let me give you a, a personal example of how I've felt like a slave recently in my life. I've had the benefit and, and joy of having brothers who love me and walk alongside me in life, who have called me on sin and idolatry in my heart. And I probably knew it, but wasn't willing to admit that I was terribly, terribly addicted to this thing, to my phone. In particular, to social media on my phone. I would just spend hours scrolling and looking and scrolling and looking and liking and wowing and thumbs-upping and until I had brothers who would call me on that and say, you realize that you're disengaging from relationships with people? And so I haven't had social media on my phone for three weeks, deleted everything. But you know what I'm doing now? I'm checking the Aldi specials. Like I'm going to my phone, I'm, I'm like opening it up, looking for that thing that will satisfy me. It's not there. And so I open the Aldi app and look at what's happening this it's pathetic, right? It's, it's funny, but it's also pathetic at the same time. And I realize that there are a whole bunch of things that are happening in my brain that make me crave that light that shines back at me. But beneath the surface of that behavior is boredom. Boredom with the people that God has placed in front of me. 
resting in the wrong place, like, like going to a device to check out and to stop thinking about all of the things that are on my mind rather than turning to God in prayer. How quickly it is on something so simple to realize that I'm trapped and I can't even get rid of it because I need it every day. We're slaves. We're more trapped and enslaved than we care to admit in our lives. You and I are slaves to our sin and to our selfish desires and enslaved to an inability to change the core of our being. We're trapped. And the freedom that you need and that I need is found only in Jesus. Have a look at verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. God sent his only child, Jesus, born of a woman. He's human, born under the law. He understands the constraints of our life. To what? To redeem us. To purchase us back. Now that word redeem or redemption is a, is a beautiful word in the scriptures. And, and what it does is it takes us back to the ancient marketplace where you could go to the market and purchase your grain and your goods and your slaves. And this word redemption speaks of someone paying a slave owner a price, a sum, to purchase the freedom for that slave and set them free. It's what Jesus has done for us. That by his life, he has redeemed us. He has purchased us. He has set us free. And his blood is the currency that pays the debt that our sin and our slavery had incurred. There's a story that I read um, uh, written by a a girl by the name of Kate Nichol on uh, that website news.com.au. She shared a story of how she took a trip to India to visit an NGO called Stop the Traffic. This is a company that works with sex trafficked slaves in India, young women, and they seek to bring them in, give them skills, so that if they do escape, if they do get released, if they do have their freedom purchased, they have something to go back to. They educate them, they give them skills, and this particular girl that they met was being taught how to do henna drawings. And so they were coaching her, and so these, these women, I think 10 of them all went and got these henna drawings from this young 25-year-old girl who had been sold as a slave in the sex industry. And as they were um, getting their, their henna drawings done and figuring out how much they were going to pay her for this, they realized that as they pulled their collective payments at the end, they were $160 short of the fee that it would cost to set this girl free from her slavery. 12,000 rupees. So they gathered together enough money, 20,000 rupees, $396. And they sent this girl back with her caseworker, 20,000 rupees, in the hope that her pimp 
would receive the payment and set her free. And she was. Praise God. She was set free. That act of payment to set someone free is the very thing that Jesus has done for you. You know, the sad reality is that so often redemption at a price in the sex trafficking world only enhances and encourages the sale of disposable women. But at least for one, there was freedom. There was freedom. And that's what Jesus has done for us. His body, His blood, shed on the cross to redeem you, to purchase you back so that you might have freedom. Freedom. You know, so often we're told what we've been saved from. You are saved from your sin. You are saved from slavery. But we're not told what we're saved for. We have been saved for freedom, according to this verse. You know, when we only get what we've been saved from and not what we've been saved for, we only end up appropriating half of the gospel to our hearts. We end up believing that God saves us by His grace, but we continue by our good works. We end up being acutely aware of our sin that Jesus has saved us from, but we struggle to appropriate the love of the Father for us. You're not just saved from sin, as true as that is. You are saved for freedom. For freedom. But more than that, You've been adopted into God's family. Have a look at verse 4 again with me. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. For what purpose? So that we might receive adoption as sons. You have been redeemed and adopted into God's family. Specifically there, adopted as a son. Now, you might wonder why the ESV hasn't used gender-neutral language there like it does in a bunch of other places. Why didn't it say, we've been adopted as children? Why doesn't it say, you've been adopted as sons and daughters? The reason it, it, it says sons is because if we use gender-neutral language in this instance, we lose a very profound cultural and theological impact. When it says that we've received adoption, it literally reads, and it's a legal term, you've received the sonship. You've received the sonship. In Greek culture, as I mentioned earlier, a firstborn son generally received most, if not all, of the inheritance. A man who was childless, particularly a wealthy man who had no son, was, according to law, able to adopt one of his slaves or one of his slave's children, to become his own son. When that moment happened, legally that child received the sonship. That is, they received the rights and security and blessing of being a firstborn son in that person's estate and family. And so when Paul says that we've received adoption as sons, He's not being sexist. 
He's actually saying something quite profound about what you've received when God adopted you into his family. Every single one of you has received that. You have received the sonship. You are officially afforded the full blessing, protection, and security of being a son of God. When God saves you, you literally become to him like a one and only son. Let that sink in for a second. When God redeems you, you literally become to him like a one and only son. Like Jesus. Like Jesus. That's the very thing that Jesus prayed for you. I don't know if you realize that. In John 17, in his high priestly prayer, Jesus prays a prayer for you. And he says this in John 17, 26. Praying to the Father, he says, I have made known to them your name and will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus asks the Father that the very love with which he has loved him would be in us, that we would experience that love. That is phenomenal. What, what a thing for Jesus to pray for us. How much do you suppose the Father loves the Son? Is there any purer, deeper, more enduring love in the universe than the love of God the Father for the Son? And Jesus says, Father, I desire that your people would experience the same love that I've experienced from you. In 1 John 3 verse 1, it says this, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. You know, there are, there are obviously differing degrees of love. Like you can love chips. You can love a medium rare steak. You can love summer holidays. You can love a, a, a cold beer or a cold Coke on a warm summer's day. Right? That, you could call that love. But it's very different from the type of love that I express and feel towards my wife. Very different from the type of love that I have for my children. When Jesus prays for you and when the Father loves you, He doesn't love you like you love salt and vinegar chips. He loves you like a child. Like one and only child. He loves you like Jesus. I am a child of God. Can you say that? Like, can, you, can you say that and really mean it? I am a child of God. The Father loves me the same way that he loves Jesus. The Father loves you with the same capacity and extent with which he loves Jesus. You know, I think every single one of us has a desire to be known and to be loved. It's what, it's what it means to be human, is it not? 
if we're honest with ourselves, the thing that we're all searching for so desperately is that someone would know us and love us as we are and accept us and approve of us and care for us. I wonder this morning, have you found that love? Have you found it? Like, I don't care what label you put on your life. Right? If, if you're a searching, if you're an agnostic, if you're an atheist, if you're a Christian, have you found that kind of love? My prayer this morning and this week has been that you would know, every single one of you that has walked into this building this morning, that you would know that you are loved by God. You know, this, this love is not just theoretical. It's not, it's not just up here. Now, this is a love that Jesus intended for you to experience. Have a look at verse 6. And because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now, that word Abba is an Aramaic word. For father, not, not in a formal sense, but in the common sense that you might find in a home. And so it could be, and many people do translate it, papa or daddy. The spirit cries out with a loud cry, daddy, daddy, papa. You know, one of my most favorite moments of the day is coming home from work, putting my keys in the door, opening the door, and as it swings open, then it slams shut quite, quite loudly. Hearing from the lounge room, we've got quite a long hallway, hearing from the lounge room, Daddy, 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 and the kids come running down the hallway, and I get on my knees, and I give them a big hug and a cuddle. I love that moment. I love hearing that cry, Daddy, 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 as the kids come running down the hallway. That's what the Spirit of God does in you. The only reason that we can call Father, God, the God of the universe, the only reason that we could call Him Daddy is because the Spirit of God has awakened our hearts and shown us who we are because of what Jesus has done. You know, not, not everyone gets to call me Daddy. Two people, <laughs> Judah and Piper. Like it would be weird if anyone else called me daddy, right? You get to call the God of the universe, dad, father. The intimacy that Brian spoke of last week is yours in Christ. I don't know if there's uh, any... Single children here? Any, anyone grow up in a, in a home as an only child? Anyone have a friend that grew up in school? We've got one. We've got one only child in the, in the room this morning. Anyone grow up in school with a friend who was an only child? I, I had a friend in primary school who was an only child, and um, I was really jealous of him because he just got spoiled, rotten. I was like, man, 
You get the best Christmas presents. You get the best birthday presents. You get whatever you want. You don't have to share anything with a sibling. Now, I realize that only children missed having a a brother or sister to play with and, and all that kind of stuff. But you know what happens when the God of the universe treats you like an only child? This is what happens. Verse 7. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. That everything that the Father has is yours. And just so you know, God owns everything. He owns the whole world. He owns the universe, the galaxy, the Milky Way, the cattle on a thousand hills. It's all his. And because he treats you like his one and only son, it's yours. That inheritance is yours. You're an heir. You know, Paul has a concern. As he writes to this church in the city of Galatia and reminds them of their new identity as adopted children and heirs in God's family, he has a concern. And his concern is this in verse 9. A fear, if you like. But now that you've come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to become once more? The context of this church here is that the Galatians were um, pagan worshippers prior to hearing about Jesus and receiving the gospel. Paul comes, preaches Jesus to them, they get saved, And then a number of religious Jews come from Jerusalem and come to the church in Galatia and say, well, in fact, if you really want to be a Christian, what you need to do is become a Jew first, which means you need to appropriate the symbol of Judaism, which is circumcision. So all you dudes out there, go and get the chop, and then you'll genuinely be a Christian. And Paul is writing to this church saying, don't go back to that. That's slavery. That's just as much slavery as you were enslaved before you came to know Jesus. His fear is that they would start living like slaves, when in fact, they're free. And I recognize that there are many here today who who are living like you're trapped, like you're enslaved. Many of you who are living with a An orphan spirit of abandonment. How do you know? There's a significant difference between a slave or an orphan and a child of God. The slave or the orphan is anxious and insecure and feels condemned. A son, a daughter, a child of God feels secure and confident, and free. There are many of you who are feeling trapped because you've gone back to the slavery from which Jesus has freed you. Church, you are not meant to live like a slave. You are a free child of God. That is how we live, not returning to the old slavery, but live walking every day by the power of the Spirit in the freedom that Jesus has won for us, in the adoption that is ours. That's how we live. 
Not going back to the old slavery. I was reading this week in my devotions, Psalm 112, and I felt like it captured um, a little window into what it's like to be secure in the Father's love. Psalm 112, I don't even know what verse it is. Verse 7, I think, says this. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid. That's a picture of the child of God who so trusts in his father's goodness and his greatness and his sovereignty over all things that as bad news comes, he is not afraid because he knows who his father is. She knows who her father is. I am a child of God. I know that some of you are believing the lie that your sin is so bad that God has given up on you. That because you have failed over and over and over and over again, that God is so frustrated with you that he says, I'm done. I know some of you are believing that lie. I want you to remind you today, church, that nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing. You have not wandered too far. Your sin has not caused the Father to stop loving you. There is still grace to meet you. The Father's arms are still open. His heart still overflows with love for you. You're His child. He loves you. Do you know that the Father is not going to leave you or abandon you? Jesus promised that in John 14, 18. I will not leave you as orphans. That's not your experience. You are free. You're a child. God does not abandon his children. He is not distant. He is not absent. He is near. If anything, walking through the last seven weeks in our series on the Holy Spirit, that should be true for us. He's present. And so we need to stop believing the lie that we're a slave, that we're under condemnation, that we need to somehow earn the Father's approval by our self-justifying behavior. Because the truth is that God loves you. The truth is that Jesus has set you free from that. The truth is that you're a child of the King. Maybe this morning you're here and, and you wouldn't consider yourself to be a person who worships Jesus, a Christian, someone who believes. This word is for you this morning. There is a God in the universe who loves you. There is a God in the universe who wants to set you free who wants to call you to be a part of his family, who wants to adopt you and love you like you have never been loved before. There is no purer love than the love that the Father has for you in Christ Jesus. If you don't know that love this morning, then we invite you to come and receive, to be set free from your slavery, to your sin and your selfish desires. And to be adopted into God's family as a child. And for those of you who love Jesus and worship him, but finding yourself living in patterns of slavery rather than sonship, 
This morning, remember that that is not your identity in Christ. You are not a slave. You're a child, beloved by the Father. He has set his affection upon you. He loves you with a love that you cannot tap the full extent of its resources. God has more love for you than what you've currently experienced. He wants you to know that. God doesn't just want to save you. He wants you to know that you are saved. He wants you to experience his love. You know, Alex Early, who preached for us a couple of months ago, wrote a book called The Reckless Love of God. And then there's a line in that book that is striking. He says, God is not hiring employees, but adopting children. God is not hiring employees, but adopting children. Is that true for you? Are you trying to work off some debt? Are you trying to work off something that you've done in your life that if you can figure that out, the Father would approve of you? God says, you're my child. I love you. Jesus has paid for that. I've dealt with it. Come and live in the freedom of grace and mercy and forgiveness. My heart is that that would be true for you today in a new and profound way. That for many of you who are wrestling with sin, for many of you who are feeling stuck and trapped, that today would be the day that you experience freedom in Christ that you would experience the love of God in a tangible and real way. We're going to respond in worship to our Father who loves us. During the next couple of songs, our band is going to lead us in a song called Good, Good Father. The line in this song says, You're a good, good father. It's who you are. I am loved by you. It's who I am. Now, if you can't sing that song with conviction and meaning and truth, like, like your lips can sing it, but if your heart cannot sing that, then I invite you to come to the back and be prayed for by one of our team that you would experience this love wherever you are in your spiritual journey, that you would know that God loves you. And we're going to respond in the Lord's Supper. There are four stations around the room to the front and halfway up the back. There are symbols of bread and grape juice that represent the currency that it cost to redeem you and rescue you and set you free, the blood and body of Jesus himself. So church, would you pause this morning and just remember that you're a child who is loved by God. He is a good, good father and you are loved by him. Let's pray. But I thank you, God, that you love us. Thank you that you love us like you've loved Jesus. Father, I thank you that you desire for us not to just know that love, but to experience it. Pray for every person in this room this morning who is feeling trapped enslaved to their sin, to their own unmet expectations. Please bring freedom. 
pray for everyone this morning who is living like a slave instead of a child. Would you remind in a powerful way this morning by your spirit of our gospel identity that we are loved by you. God, I pray as we worship you that the words that come from our lips would be a true reflection of our heart, that you are indeed our good, good Father, and that we are loved by you. We worship you. We love you. We thank you that you love us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.